Check it out. Hi, my name's Josh. In this episode, Australian Federation of AIDS Organisations CEO Daryl O'Donnell chats with me about Australia's HIV landscape, how far we've come, what we still need to do and what we can all be proud of. Check it out. LGBTIQ health, lifestyle and community news. Check it out is brought to you by the AIDS Action Council. From Canberra. For everyone. So we're joined by... Adjunct Associate Professor Daryl O'Donnell, uh, who is the Chief Executive of the Australian Federation of AIDS Organisations. Welcome, Daryl. Thanks, Josh. Um, can you tell us a little bit about FAO and the work of, of FAO? Sure. So uh, uh, I've now been with FAO for, for two years uh, uh, in my current role, and um, and we've been around for uh, for about 35 years now, so right back to the, the first days of the epidemic. Uh, and, and we came to life, we came into existence because organisations like the AIDS Action Council here in ACT uh, and the other AIDS councils um, uh, came together and said, we need a national voice. We need someone uh, who can be in Canberra and who can actually represent uh, us as organisations, as emerging organisations, and can represent our communities, uh, can talk to the federal government about HIV, uh, what it means in our lives as gay men and as others affected by the epidemic. Uh, and can advocate for us, and that's that's where we started, and that's what we continue to do today. Yeah, and what a wonderful advocate uh, AFAO is. I certainly know from the council's perspective, um, the work that AFAO does is incredibly uh, valuable uh, in our local community and also at a at a national level. Now, you mentioned you've been with AFAO for two years, but um, your involvement uh, in HIV advocacy is much longer than that. Yeah. Would you like to share a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, in fact, uh, AFAO, I've been around AFAO uh, now for around 25 years, uh, so it's been a big part of my life. Um, uh, so, I'm originally a Brisbane boy. I, uh, I grew up in, in Queensland, in Brisbane, and and I was at university, I was coming out as a gay man uh, in the early 1990s, uh, so around 91, 92. Uh, that was my first um, uh, working it out kind of moment and uh, and the first time I was meeting other gay men and starting to, to get to know my community. And uh, and I think, like for many of us, that was you know incredibly powerful time and amazing experience. But uh, for me, um, uh, as amazing and as wonderful as an experience that was, I was also coming out uh, in the midst of an epidemic. And in Brisbane at that stage, many of the people that I was meeting were uh, uh, were other gay men, uh, often a bit older than me, you know, sort of early 40s uh, sort of gay men. And, and that was the group that were most heavily impacted by the epidemic. They were carrying the burden of, of HIV and many of them were living with HIV at a time before there was effective treatment. Uh, so for me, the coming out experience was was a mix of being a wonderful thing at the same time as being incredibly confronting because in discovering something, I was also meeting people who I was losing. And there are a lot of people who were dying and uh, uh, we wouldn't quite have reached the peak of the epidemic in terms of the number of people we lost uh, until a few years later. But, uh, but it was very traumatising for a young person uh, to find something and to lose it at the same time. So, so I got active, I got, got angry and uh, and really wanted to be part of this movement of uh, gay men and others who were responding to the epidemic. And that's how I got involved. So uh, so originally as an activist, as a volunteer, uh, also with the Queensland AIDS Council. And then very early on, Queensland AIDS Council, this was a very big deal for me. Very early on when I was sort of, you know, hanging around trying to find things to do and ways to help, uh, they sort of uh, must have recognised something in me or just uh, as a way of valuing me said, we want to send you to Canberra 
uh, where FAO was based at the time and uh, I wanted to do some peer education uh, workshops there, some training, and, uh, and that's what I did. And it was a, a really big deal for me that an organisation sort of saw in me uh, an opportunity to, to, to recognise something that they saw uh, and to value that. And, uh, and I've been part of the response to HIV ever since. Dale, you touched on uh, community being a, a really important part of that initial response. How important is community today? Is it still still as necessary as it as it was in the early days? Yeah, it's, it's, it was important then, and it's important now. Uh, and I think one of the things that's been really most astonishing about Australia's response to HIV is that we got that from the very very beginning, and many places in the world didn't. Uh, many places thought that they could, you know, this was a medical problem and it could be solved by doctors and nurses in clinics, or they thought it was a, a problem that government could solve. But HIV is something that's incredibly personal to our lives, whether we're living with HIV or we're HIV negative. All of us as gay men find that we're connected somehow to the epidemic, uh, more or less remotely. And there are many others who are also affected. And uh, and, and when you're sort of living in the midst of something, when you have this uh, this thing, this HIV that hovers around your life, you have to make sense of it and you have to work out how you're going to navigate through uh, your experience of that. We got that really early, that it's those who are most affected who are best placed to respond. And in fact, that became one of the principles of the national response to HIV in Australia. But it's as true now as well, because even with things like uh, effective HIV treatment um, that keeps people well uh, and, you know, offers the promise of normal life expectancy for people who are diagnosed early and are able to start treatment, uh, things like PrEP, uh, things like, you know, new testing technology. For all of that, uh, for all of the wonderful shiny technology and the capacity of doctors and nurses to, to offer that to us, it's fundamentally still about us. And it's fundamentally about how we make sense of HIV, uh, how we engage with it, how we talk with our our friends, our loved ones, uh, our partners about that, and the choices we make. And I think we are making some good progress on HIV. We've got a lot to be proud of. But there's a, a huge amount to be done, and I think we should be making more progress than we are at the moment. But community is central to that. And uh, we can't do it without the support of government. But equally, uh, government needs us in order to, to get to get the right kind of outcomes in the epidemic to really drive HIV to low levels. You touched on before the, the, the personal emotion that kind of connects you to the cause. Uh, I was very privileged to be in the audience at Health Indifference when you gave a really beautiful, eloquent reflection of, of community and, and what drives community. And it has been sitting in the back of my head for weeks. It, begins with a feeling. Mm. Can you kind of s- summarise that beautiful and moving speech you, you yeah, gave? Sure. So it was, it was actually, in, in some ways it was a very ref- confronting speech to give because the brief, uh, so this is the Health Indifference Conference, the National LGBTI Health Conference, and, uh, and I was invited to be one of the keynote speakers, uh, an amazing panel of, um, of, of um, other keynote speakers as well. And each was, was given a brief to just provide a personal reflection on how uh, how our community's responses to health are changing, uh, their evolution and uh, and their prospects for the future. And the brief I was given was to, to reflect on gay men's uh, experiences of health. And um, uh, and that's a bigger experience than HIV, but for me, HIV has been at the, the heart of that experience. 
But being asked, you know, I've, I've worked in this area for a really long time. I'm personally connected to this area, but being asked to stand in an audience of 200 or so people, uh, 300, 400 people, and to talk from a personal perspective is actually quite a challenging brief, but but full marks to the, the National Alliance for asking that. And I think for all of us who delivered presentations that day, it was a very personal kind of reflection that we offered. And for me, the starting point of that was that for all of us who work in this area, uh, whether we're volunteers or activists or whether we're community workers, whether we're from our communities but actually working inside governments or sometimes even in industry or uh, as doctors and nurses, wherever we come from, there is something fundamentally personal and that's part of the strength of the response to HIV that we are connected to it. It's not a, it's not something that's distant and over there and, uh, you know, that uh, it's just another problem that, uh, that we're working on. It's something that's right in the midst of our lives and that we care about deeply. Uh, and for me, in, in, in providing the personal reflection, you know, I did start with that idea that before everything else, for us as community, it's the feeling. It's the, it's the sense as we, as we grow up that there is something happening in our lives uh, that's dissonant, that's uh, discordant with the world around us. And, and for many of us, we have an experience of internalising that. We think there's something wrong with us, that there's some uh, fault uh, on our part. And, and uh, hopefully for most of us, the coming out process, which um, can be such a joyful and powerful experience, a life-changing experience, um, part of that is recognising that the feeling isn't a problem in us the feeling is a problem in the world around us. Uh, and for me and for many others, that that awareness that something's wrong in the world, that, that the way we are, which is right, uh, is not accepted by others, becomes a political issue, becomes, a, first of all, a, a search for others like us, but, but fundamentally also a process of, of creating change, of saying, no, we have a right to exist and we have a right to be who we are, and our task then is to work with others in our communities to actually uh, affirm that right, uh, to, um, to make claim that this is okay, whether it's about our gender or about our sexuality or our bodies, that we are who we are and that is um, correct. But we are on a journey with the, with the wider, wider community um, to bring understanding and acceptance and, uh, uh, and, and more than that, to actually celebrate uh, that diversity and difference. I stood a lot taller after hearing that, <laughs> that, 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 that talk. It was, it was really beautiful and moving and, and to hear such a, a passionate advocate articulate so well that sense of community and, and the pride in that community yeah, was, right. was just, yeah, um, but yeah, bit of a fanboy. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also, you know, look, there's a, a lot of hard work involved as well. Yeah. Uh, because I think, you know, the strength that comes from community and from the, from our understanding of ourselves and about the journey we've been on builds that kind of empathy, doesn't it? It's that desire then to recognise that there's an injustice that we want to correct. And it's not an injustice just for ourselves individually. It's actually an injustice um, for so many people. And correcting the injustices actually takes a lot of work. One of the amazing things about HIV is just how rapidly things have changed. There's still a huge amount of stigma, a lot of discrimination, um, a lot of misunderstanding around HIV, a lot of very old-fashioned thinking. But gee, it's different today to where we were 10 years ago or 20 years ago and certainly 30 years ago. And it's not just HIV. If we look at uh, the experience of uh, gay and lesbian communities in terms of um, the, the history of that movement, you know, in the mid-90s, it would never have occurred to me that marriage might be something we could uh, aim for. Um, when we look at uh, gender and the amazing kind of 
uh, conversation at the community level, uh, at the wider public level, and actually globally around gender and gender diversity. You know, it's astonishing how fast these things are moving. But at another level, it's frustrating because we need it to move even faster still. And the advocacy, whether it's with governments or whether it's to get the build that understanding at the community level, that's hard work. It's hard work. And my, my starting philosophy is people don't mean to do the wrong thing. People don't mean to be hurtful. People don't mean to, to be willfully neglectful of our, our dignity or our lives or our health. And so I start from that place and you work forward from there. Um, as an advocate, you work with, okay, so if something's going wrong here, how do we correct it? What's happening for that person or that institution that they represent that leads them to do these things which we experience as harmful? And how do you bring about change in that context? And you never assume that change is easy. It's not. If, if change was easy, we wouldn't have the struggle of, um, of, of the movement that um, has existed for our communities over the last 50 years and longer. It is a struggle. And the task is to work out how to actually create that change and how to do it in ways that are sufficiently ambitious, right? We should have high expectations that things can be better and must be better. Sufficiently ambitious, while at the same time not blowing the top off all of these relationships. You know, if, you, if you're in an organisation such as a fair, if you're in a job like mine and you walk into the minister and you start slamming your fist on the table, uh, it doesn't go well. You know, that's not the way to actually um, have a discussion with, uh, with government, with a minister or with a departmental official or with a church official or with uh, anyone else. So you've got to be able to regulate the temperature on advocacy. And for different people in our communities, that can look a bit different. So the activists, they've got free reign. They can they can thump the table, and that's <laughs> that's fantastic. That's a really important part of, of the movement. And then for others of us, we're working uh, sometimes behind the scenes, sometimes publicly, but uh, uh, but towards trying to, to make make those changes actually happen, get policies in place that actually affirm our communities, uh, get programs in place, get investments in place so that our communities are resourced to be able to look after each other uh, through programs and services in the way that we want to. I guess uh, one of the big victories for advocacy lately has been the listing of PrEP on the, the PBS. And I know a massive amount of work went into that mm. from uh, yourself and AFAO and, and, and right across uh, the HIV sector. Do you want to reflect on that journey? <laughs> well, we're, we're finally there. You know, 1 April 2018, that's the date that um, PrEP finally made it onto the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme. And by the standards of regulatory approvals, it was pretty quick. By our standards as a community, it was terribly slow. <laughs> you know, it was it was far, far, far too slow. In 2011 is when the first trial data started emerging, telling us that um, PrEP was effective. And first trial data was very interesting. And, uh, and over the subsequent years, it just got more and more and more interesting and compelling. And we knew by 2014 or so that PrEP was um, astonishingly effective in preventing HIV through sexual transmission for people at higher risk. And so to, to wait from 2014 to 2018, it has been a long wait. But, uh, but we got there, and in the interim, of course, we had access trials. There's an access trial uh, running here in the ACT uh, alongside PBS access. And a lot of people have been personally importing the drug as well. So, so our communities have actually been very creative in getting interim access. But it has been a difficult journey, and I think um, one of the reasons that it took longer than we would have wanted it to is 
actually nothing to do with whether PrEP works, uh, whether it's safe, whether it makes sense in terms of uh, the economics of it. It was actually to do with uh, some very strange issues around the, the nature of the drug itself. So PrEP, uh, the brand name drug, of course, is Truvada. It's an old drug. It's not new. It's uh, not something we've just discovered. It's a treatment for HIV, and it's been registered as a treatment and funded as a treatment for HIV since the early 2000s. And one of the things that means is that it's actually coming off patent uh, in Australia. It no longer has a patent. That's why we have generic versions of it available. But because it was an older drug, it actually meant that the approval process, rather than being faster, was actually slower because the incentives for industry weren't the same in terms of them pushing this through the regulatory process. Uh, so it did take a little bit of um, encouragement and uh, and there was support for that. Uh, Gilead, the brand uh, name manufacturer of Trivada, put in two major applications and that was, uh, that was very welcome because that allowed the government to look at those applications, but the price was too high. And it really took until the patent came off for the generic manufacturers to be able to also come in uh, under that uh, major application from Gilead for the generic manufacturers to put their applications, their minor submissions on the table and the, th- the three companies then and the competitive price pressures between them and the government's own work meant that a, a sensible price could be reached. And for us as communities, part of the dilemma was we didn't want government to pay too much for this. It's not right. You know, the, this is precious money. Government uh, shouldn't pay more than is uh, than is fair or appropriate for something like this. And eventually, they got to a, a very, very sensible price, a good price, and uh, and we now got a, uh, now have access to to prep, which is great. It's wonderful news, really wonderful news. A massive activist-led campaign, U equals U, undetectable equals untransmittable, is gaining momentum. And there was a recent tour in Australia uh, promoting that message. Very exciting in the agency it provides mm. um, to people, irrespective of their status, yeah. that they can have you know fulfilling sexual relationships with without stigma or, yep. or fear driving it. Yep. What are your thoughts on U equals U? Well, it's 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 another one of those moments, isn't it? And uh, you know we've actually known the science around this for for quite a while now. I think what's happened with U equals U is that. The science is connected up with uh, policy and the community dialogue. You know the commu- the discussion around this, and uh, but it's the the science is incontrovertible. You know, if a person has undetectable viral load for HIV, they will not pass on HIV through sexual transmission. That's absolutely incontrovertible, and we see it uh, in all sorts of different ways through really large trials, really large studies uh, that give us um, a very great, a very high degree of confidence that uh, that HIV won't be transmitted. Uh, through sex on an undetectable viral load. But the, the cultural impact, the community dimensions of that are huge because it overturns 35 years of um, thinking and belief for our communities. And you can't overturn that immediately. So the, the real excitement of the UE Kuzhu campaign is that it's, uh, it's, it's challenging the way as communities we have thought about HIV, with the way we've thought about people with HIV, the way we've thought about transmissibility, the way we've thought about how we connect as HIV negative people with HIV positive people, as HIV positive people with HIV negative people. And that's an incredibly exciting moment, and particularly for people with HIV, who throughout this epidemic have carried that burden of, of worry of anxiety, of uh, wanting to do the right thing by others, of feeling responsible for always looking after others, uh, even though we've always talked in our community about shared responsibility. I think for many people with HIV, it hasn't necessarily felt 
always like a shared responsibility. And so UXU is liberating uh, for many people in that sense to be able to to be free of the anxiety, to be free of the worry that, that they've carried for, for so long. But we do have a long way to go with this. We've always known, it's always been true in the response to HIV, that people with HIV are often generally you know, the most expert, the most informed, not only their own experience, but actually in the science as well. They, you know, a lot of people really know a, a great deal about, uh, about HIV and the way it affects them and about treatment. And that's true today too. And so people with HIV, as a rule, are a long way ahead of HIV negative people in terms of understanding these things. Uh, and so the real challenge is not only for us to make sure that um, the people with HIV themselves know the news about you equals you, but actually that their HIV negative friends, lovers, partners um, also understand that as well and understand not only that as a scientific issue, uh, as, as a matter of science, but, but actually also understand it as an issue of uh, at the emotional level that we no longer have to be separated. You know, that the terrible, the terrible fault line that HIV created between those who are HIV positive and those who are HIV negative, you equals you bridges that, it heals that zero divide, uh, that, that thing that's, that's pulled us apart as a community and helps to knit it back together. Uh, and PrEP also helps with that because for the first time, you know, HIV negative people are taking what are HIV treatments uh, alongside HIV positive people doing the same sort of routine of a pill a day. So there's a whole lot of things that are helping to heal some of the separation. So even though it's still a very different experience to have HIV as not having HIV, hopefully we're doing a bit of knitting back together uh, after too many years of being separated. Is this going to be the ultimate combo for helping really smash stigma? I hope so. I hope so. Uh, stigma is such a complex um, problem, and I think I think there's been a real recognition for a long time now, but particularly in recent years, a real recognition that we can't make uh, a great deal of further progress on HIV without really tackling the problem of stigma. The question is how you do it. You know, I do a lot of media and. When I do media, I'm often people often you know they'll they'll put up the Grim Reaper in the background while I'm if I'm doing a TV interview or, or on the radio I'll, you know I'll be waiting to go on air and I'll hear them playing the the Grim Reaper advertisement. It's such a reference point for us in Australia because so many of us were so deeply traumatised by it. But the problem for us is that every time they reference the Grim Reaper, every time we talk about the 80s, every time we talk about the horror of the the, the early years of the AIDS crisis. It throws us back to something that's no longer real. Uh, it's now a historic artefact. Uh, many of us lived through it, so it's part of our lives, our experience, but it's not true of today. And part of the problem of tackling stigma is how you tell a contemporary story of HIV. Do people understand in the community that that you equals you? Do they understand that treatment is very effective, that people live a, a healthy and normal life, that a diagnosis is not a death sentence, that uh, HIV can't be transmitted casually? Do people actually have that understanding? Do they really get it? And I'm not sure that enough Australians actually do. And until enough Australians do, then we're going to carry this problem of stigma. And the challenge for us is uh, we get the problem the question is, how do you tackle it? And uh, how do you tackle something so deeply embedded in the Australian psyche? There's no easy answer to that. It's a, a long-term project. There's no quick fix for it. Check it out. 
The eighth national HIV strategy is soon to be released. It is, is that correct? It is. It, it is. Um, waiting with bated breath. <laughs> can 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 you give us any any inside information? Yeah, sure. So, so the eighth. Uh, so one of the one of the stories of Australia's response. This is you know credit to government. Um, we have consistently had in place national policy to guide the response to HIV. Uh, so this national strategy is endorsed by the Australian government but also simultaneously with all of the state and territory governments. So all health ministers sign up to this strategy, and that's um, very, very important in terms of locking in the kind of commitments uh, to the principles and the approaches that are really important in the response, and that includes keeping community at the heart of the response. We're now on approach to the eighth strategy. Uh, it's There's a draft that's uh, been um, developed, and uh, I think what we'll see in the new strategy is both uh, the continuity uh, that's very important in terms of those underlying principles and values of the response. Uh, I think we'll see those um, uh, further embedded in this strategy. But I think we'll also see a bit of an updating uh, because the world has changed. It's changed really profoundly uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, it's not just in terms of things like PrEP and U equals U, although we'll certainly see those reflected more strongly in the strategy. It's also that um, for the first time in a really long time, I think we're recognising that a thousand new diagnoses every year is far more than we should be seeing in Australia. And uh, for many years, I think we kind of had this sense that Australia was doing very well, we were probably achieving about as much as we could hope to, even though we were trying to do better. Whereas now I think the understanding is a little bit different. I think today there's a better recognition that a thousand is far too many and that we can and must do a lot better than that. Um, PrEP will be a big part of that. U equals U is already helping and has been for a long time. Uh, PrEP will really help us to drive down those rates of HIV from around 1,000, uh, maybe to, to sort of 600, 500, 400 a year. We hope uh, if we can get PrEP out at scale. But the work beyond that also is important. There are a lot of people who are still getting HIV that uh, where we need to really do better in terms of providing the education, providing the outreach, providing the support that prevents those transmissions. And there are some communities, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in particular, where we're not seeing gains, we're actually seeing an erosion uh, of previous success. So we've seen a doubling of HIV rates among Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. That just shouldn't be happening. And if we do see very large-scale increases in HIV in that community, in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, it's very hard once something like HIV is entrenched in a community to get to, to get it out. So prevention is incredibly important everywhere, but particularly for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities uh, and for others. You know, even even with PrEP, uh, we're observing that um, not everyone, uh, not all gay men uh, who are the biggest uh, adopters of PrEP, not all gay men are benefiting equally. So for, uh, for Asian gay men, for instance, uh, we're seeing lower uptake of PrEP, uh, lesser engagement. And so that's very important that we're reaching all corners, all parts of our communities to make sure that everyone can benefit um, from that and from other um, prevention approaches. That's a real challenge from a community perspective, from a health perspective. Mm. What do we need to do differently? Uh, well, I think uh, I think part of it is the digital age. You know, the world is really different now to what it was when we were doing education in the uh, the eighties, the nineties, and the and the early two thousands. So, um, people connect with technology and very different connect with health and uh, health information uh, and health services in very different ways. Uh, and I think as uh, as organisations locally, been here in Canberra, also at the national level, I think uh, there's been huge progress 
in terms of really starting to try and connect with people in the ways that make most sense to them. And a lot of that is about digital, digital information. But I think the other part of it is we really need to understand the complete diversity of both the gay community but all of those who are affected by HIV. And that diversity has always been there. But I think as we make progress, as we do start to see reductions in HIV transmission, we need to make sure that no one gets left behind and that we're really attending to the, the, the very um, specific contexts of HIV in, in, in the lives of, of those who are affected. So it's not enough to sort of do blanket uh, health promotion, do blanket campaigns or blanket approaches. They're not going to work in the way that they once did because the task is becoming more specialised. So it means that for Asian gay men who are missing out on PrEP, we need to be going to Asian gay men and learning from them about what will work Uh, how to talk about these sorts of issues, what are the barriers, uh, what would make PrEP more attractive, and then to be responding in kind with that kind of intelligence to make sure that it's really deeply informed. And that will continue to replicate. For for women who are living with HIV, they have a very different experience overall of living with HIV to, to men. And, and when women with HIV approach a service or they see some information, it's not enough for that simply to talk about people with HIV, for women necessarily to read themselves into that. It's got to be material that is clearly referencing the, comp- the experience of the, of the person who's engaging with it. So I think part of the challenge for us from here is actually recognising that diversity and really responding to it in very tailored ways. The challenge, of course, is none of us have got the kind of capacity, the kind of resources to be able to stretch endlessly. And so I think as organisations um, around the country, we're going to have to be a lot cleverer, um, really put put our heads together to work out um, how can we create the greatest possible impact uh, with all of the, you know, the, the intelligence and the enthusiasm and the capability that we have, how do we pull that um, so that we're creating the greatest impact for our communities? As well as uh, connecting with the harder-to-reach communities, what other challenges face the sector? I think one of the big challenges is the contemporary story of HIV. Uh, you know, I don't think we've updated the story in the in the, the wider public in the way that we've needed to. Too many people default to older versions of the story. That has uh, implications for all of us in different ways, for people with HIV, you know, getting that diagnosis, talking to parents, talking to friends. If, if, if the people that we're talking to are locked into an 80s story, then the experience of talking about our own diagnoses becomes so much harder. You know, for us as negative people, coming out to family, you know, coming out to friends, you know, there, there is still that kind of uh, stigma and association with HIV that's part of an old story. So I think there's those sorts of aspects of it. But but one of the really good things that's happened is, of course, HIV is no longer front-page news. Uh, and sometimes people think that's a bad thing, but but my view is it's a good thing. We didn't, you know, it, it shouldn't have been on the front page. That was hysteria. That was um, fear, terror. Uh, that's no good. Uh, we want to be further, further down the back of the newspaper. We don't want people to be uh, hysterical or frightened or anxious about HIV. We want them to understand it, um, but we don't want it to be a Category 1 issue. The problem that that can create is that in policy terms, in, in terms of government interest, uh, if it's not on the front page, it can be hard to continue to keep the governments interested and engaged in responding to HIV in the right way. And the right way actually includes scale. You know, it's not enough to do a little bit of stuff here and a little bit of stuff there. For governments, 
to really be making a difference, they need to be resourcing our organisations at the right scale to actually do all of the work that's needed with all of the communities who are affected. And it is harder at this stage in the epidemic uh, to mobilise governments, to mobilise resources uh, than it has been. But that's that's the challenge. And under the current government, uh, you know, this minister, Greg Hunt, uh, the federal minister, very interested, very committed to making further gains on HIV. Uh, he was a real champion for getting PrEP listed once he had a, a, a recommendation that he could act on from the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee. And he, on a number of occasions, has, has made very clear to us that he sees PrEP as part of the puzzle, a really important part of the puzzle, but by no means all of it. And that's that's the truth of it. You know, PrEP is, is a really big step forward, but it's not all of the puzzle. Uh, a lot more is needed, and I think this minister really understands that. So there are gains, and of course on the opposition side, we always work across the parliament. On the opposition side, Labor has made a, uh, a very powerful commitment uh, to HIV that if there's a change of government at the coming federal election, they will really seriously reinvest in national efforts to uh, to drive HIV to low levels and to uh, provide uh, the right kinds of supports for people who are living with HIV. So a $54 million commitment by Labor uh, ahead of the next federal election. So that's big money. Uh, so I think we're doing quite well in terms of maintaining that political engagement. But it takes a lot of work, and uh, and it doesn't happen uh, without effort. But uh, but I think on both sides of the parliament, and also on the crossbenches, and uh, with the minor parties, there does continue to be a lot of support and a lot of understanding that Australia has done something really uh, important on HIV, led by communities, and that it needs to, to continue to be nurtured uh, if we're to continue to benefit from that. That community-centred response. That's right. Definitely. That's right. But uh, I think we need to acknowledge that successive governments, right of, of all persuasions, mm. have played a really kind of key role That's in, right. in supporting those communities. And let's hope that that support continues and grows. Absolutely. Testing. I know in the ACT we're still seeing an uncomfortable number of uh, late diagnoses, mm. which means that people aren't testing. Uh, do we need to change the testing game? How do we change the testing <laughs> game? <laughs> That's a big question. Um, yes, we do. I think we have made some progress in recent years in terms of making testing easier and more convenient. So it wasn't very long ago that people would need to see their doctor, potentially get a pathology referral, go see a blood nurse, uh, have their blood drawn, and then go back to see their doctor You know, a week or so later for their results. That's, in, that's a huge ask for prevention, for, for, for people looking after the possibility that something might happen. It's a really big ask for people to be that invested in, in getting a test, and particularly if we're asking them to do that uh, two, three, or up to four times a year. And so making testing more convenient is really important, and we've seen some gains on that. A lot of people now see their, uh, see their doctor, and, uh, and it's a fairly straightforward process um, in terms of getting that test and then getting their results by SMS. But I think there's still more to be done here, and we've seen in many states and territories the emergence of community-led, peer-based uh, testing sites. Um, none of us actually want to be at the doctor's surgery more often than we need to be. And the opportunity to go into a, a space that feels, looks and smells like a community space, it's, it's a comfortable space, uh, we're among our peers and our friends, to be tested in that sort of environment is a much more positive experience for many people. And, and the data from those sites uh, is very compelling. Those sites are not only great at attracting people to test regularly and more frequently than they would in a doctor's clinical setting, 
but they actually attract people who wouldn't otherwise go to a doctor. People who won't go to a GP and, and seek a test will go to a, a peer-led site. So we need to look at different models as well to really drive up testing. And, and of course, uh, into the future, we're hopeful that we'll see self-testing available more widely in Australia. So at the moment, there's no self-test approved for HIV. But there are some very, very promising, very safe, uh, proven products available, but they're not quite through the regulatory process here in Australia. Uh, and we, we are frustrated and continue to be frustrated that the regulatory process is exceedingly slow uh, and cumbersome in Australia for, uh, for getting devices such as HIV self-tests through. Uh, so, uh, so we really want to see more rapid action on that. But for late diagnosis, uh, that's a real challenge. And... Uh, uh, I think sometimes we assume that, that people who get a diagnosis of HIV a long time after they actually acquired HIV, we often assume, oh, it must be people outside the gay community. But in fact, many of the people that get a late diagnosis are actually gay men. And they're gay men who are, are connected to our communities, who know about HIV, who are taking steps to look after themselves and others, but who for one reason or another just haven't tested and it could be because they didn't think that they were at risk, that they didn't think that a test result would, would produce uh, a positive uh, result. Uh, or it could be that they've been frightened or that there's been something happening for them that's just meant that they haven't been willing to engage with a HIV test. And encouraging those gay men to, to go for that test is, is so incredibly important. But I don't think we fully understand what that looks like and how to how to provide that encouragement and support um, for that testing. But it's very very important. Uh, and beyond our communities, it's a different kind of challenge. There are about twenty percent of diagnoses of HIV in Australia that are among heterosexual people, and about half of those are people who have um, acquired HIV while overseas because they were travelling from Australia or because they're residents from overseas countries who have moved to Australia and they've acquired um, HIV while, uh, while resident at home. And then there's another, another half uh, who are heterosexual people in Australia who have acquired HIV. And the dilemma of, uh, of driving down those, those late diagnoses is that uh, for many of those people, they don't realise they've been at risk. And so they don't, it doesn't occur to them to ask for a HIV test. Uh, and it doesn't occur to a doctor to offer a HIV test. And so what we really need to be doing is making testing a lot more normal, a lot more routine, uh, not a big deal, just something that's part of our sexual health care, part of our primary health care, um, part of being an adult, part of being sexually active, that we will get tested for HIV and STIs uh, from time to time. And uh, for gay men, that'll be more, more frequently. And for others who might have been sexually active with, uh, with, with casual partners, to be thinking about a, a HIV test uh, to check that there's not a diagnosis there. You touched on uh, people not being offered HIV tests mm. when they uh, see their GP, mm. and that's a that's a common story I hear. Mm. What can we do to promote HIV literacy among general practitioners? Now, I think this is I think this is a really huge part of the task. 
I think we have to expect more from, from general practitioners. We really do need for GPs to be thinking about sexual health care uh, and to be making this offer because it's hard for patients to ask. Um, patients fear being judged. And so for doctors uh, to create the environment where it's possible to ask, to create a safe space, to have posters in their waiting room, to have posters in their office that signal you can ask me for a HIV test, you can ask for a sexual health checkup, all of those things, creating that environment is really important. But I I don't mean to be hard on doctors because uh, we expect so much of our GPs, don't we? We We really do. You go in for a short consultation and you're supposed to take one issue with you and I know I always take three with me and uh, and think I'm going to get out there in 15 minutes. And, you know, it's a a pretty tough uh, gig uh, being a a GP and and there's a lot of things that GPs need to be thinking about in terms of healthcare beyond sexual health. There's, you know, particularly as we age, um, there are a lot of things that are going through a GP's mind as as they're seeing us in a brief consult in addition to the thing that we've actually gone to see them about. So it's actually very difficult for GPs uh, to to build another thing into their um, consultation practice, but we do need to to, to elevate uh, the profile of uh, of sexual health for GPs, and we need for GPs to take those steps to make it easier uh, for patients to get that sexual health care regularly. I guess we're very fortunate here in Canberra. We have some wonderful GPs uh, and sexual health specialists. Some some great services peer-based services like the council. Uh, We've got Canberra Sexual Health Centre and uh, Dr Sarah Martin and the team at at ChefPAC, Tuck Ming Su. That's that's been a huge part of the response. You know, we talked a bit about, uh, you know, this being a community-led response, but right from the very beginning of this response, we've also had researchers and we've had doctors and nurses uh, right by our side, um, often of our communities, um, but actually also our allies who have been in this with us from the beginning. And uh, for many of us, we actually see doctors, you know, for, for our healthcare, who have been part of the HIV response. We go to the high caseload practices, uh, so-called high caseload practices, where doctors are, you know, immensely experienced, deeply experienced in terms of um, uh, thinking about HIV, thinking about sexual health. Uh, so I think uh, we're incredibly fortunate with that. Uh, the, the bigger challenge is outside of those practices uh, where GPs might not feel as confident, might not feel as comfortable asking about or offering sexual health care. And sometimes it can be very practical things. You know, GPs are like the rest of us. How do, how do, you, how do you offer something that, that might actually cause offence? If I'm a doctor and I offer someone a sexual health uh, checkup and they're offended because they think I've judged them, then that, then I haven't I haven't done my job properly as a doctor. And so it's tough on both sides. It's tough to ask and it's tough to offer. And we need to work on both sides of that equation to uh, equip uh, GPs to encourage and to support them in terms of how they can make an offer of a sexual health checkup in a way that's sensitive, that's routine, that's normal, that doesn't uh, make a big deal of it, and that's safe for the doctor. At the same time as we make it easier for patients as well. We've got to work both sides of that equation, but particularly for doctors who haven't been deeply involved in HIV and sexual health care. Hopefully uh, having PrEP on the, the PBS will, will help some of that messaging. It, and, it really will. Yeah. yeah this is G- PrEP is available from any GP. And so for the first time, a lot of people will be going to their, their GP and talking not just about testing, but actually talking about can I access this, you know, this new prevention drug for HIV. And that's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for GPs to uh, to be more engaged in those issues and for more of us to be able to see um, doctors who might live closer to where we live and to, uh, to get our, our health care uh, in places that are more convenient to us.
research, as you touched on, is very important, and Australia has done a, a great amount of work in uh, in that area. Afeo has just brought on a, a senior research officer. Uh, what's that role about? What where where are the research priorities? So this is this is one of those uh, new things that we're doing uh, with our member organisations, the AIDS councils, including the AIDS Action Council here in in Canberra, where we're pooling our resources. Now we're trying to trying to do more by doing it together. And uh, and we've uh, we've put our money together to appoint a, a, a senior research officer who will uh, be available for all of our organisations uh, to help us to navigate the research maze. We've got we've got amazing research in Australia and astonishing uh, of astonishing quality. But we've also got a lot of data relative to other countries, and uh, we're very fortunate to have some of the best researchers in the world. But uh, it can actually be quite hard to navigate. You know, if you're an educator working in an AIDS council and uh, working across um, a number of communities on a number of different issues, staying across that research can be very hard. Uh, and so the position uh, that we've recruited to will actually help educators, frontline workers uh, around Australia to interpret, to make sense of the research. But most of all, uh, not for that to be an academic question, you know, not for, not for this to be, oh, that's an interesting finding, but to make sense of how to take that finding and actually put it into practice. So when we learn something new about um, late diagnosis of HIV, to work out how that can help in terms of the work of counsellors in organisations or the work of educators in organisations or clinical support staff. Uh, and so the research officer we've 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 hired is um, uh, we're so fortunate to have uh, to secured her. Her name's uh, Dr. Jeannie Ellard, and she's actually worked with uh, our community. She's a researcher. She's got a PhD in anthropology. And she's worked with our communities for for a very very long time as a researcher, uh, and she's now uh, jumped to the other side, and she's now uh, working with us uh, from the community side, helping us to to bridge our relationships, our partnerships with researchers. So not only will she help us to make sense of research, she'll actually be able to lead on research questions for us as organisations, the councils, the AIDS councils, and AFAO. But she'll also be able to work with the researchers to be able to say to them, look, these are the sorts of things we're hearing from the AIDS councils. These are the sorts of things that gay men are talking about, others in our communities are talking about. Uh, and we need to actually understand this better. So it's a kind of an early warning system, uh, an early signalling system that, that allows uh, for us to be able to go to researchers and to say, this is what we're starting to hear. So researchers can be starting to build that into their proposals and into their studies um, to learn more about it. You were in Bangkok recently? I was in Bangkok, it yes. It wasn't a holiday, was it? Was, it? No, no, no. So we're, we're a small organisation. Um, as Betafeo uh, works both domestically in Australia, of course, and um, but we've actually also had an international program now for about 30 years. And, uh, and at the moment we've got a an amazing team uh, of six uh, in Bangkok led by our international programs manager who are leading work both from Thailand but also in three other countries in Asia, uh, in the Philippines, in uh, Indonesia and in Malaysia and uh, doing amazing work to support our communities across those countries. I guess for people working in the HIV sector, there's the professional aspect and the and the personal aspect. How is your personal relationship and understanding of HIV and how it affects our communities changed over time? Mm. Uh, that's a that's a that's a good question. Uh, it's a big question. You know, in terms of the the long history of the epidemic, um, you know, my part of that story only started in the early '90s, but that was a a pretty brutal 
pretty brutal time, particularly for a young person, uh, to be living through uh, the horror of the epidemic at that stage. Um, that, that's not today's experience. So, so I suppose one of the, the personal experience of the epidemic is we're no longer living in fear. Uh, we're no longer living with uh, the expectation that we're going to keep losing people around us. We're no longer worrying about you know, our loved ones, about um, uh, who has HIV and, and how they're going and um, whether treatment is uh, going to keep them well. Um, that's not part of our story anymore. So, so at a personal level, all of the horror of the epidemic has receded. But that took a long time. It was uh, you know, the mid-90s when, when treatments became uh, available. But it wasn't the mid-90s when we thought it was all over, when we thought that it would be okay again. It took, took a long time for, for me to, to come to accept that actually not only were these treatments seeming to work, but we could, we could maybe start to imagine that they would keep working. Uh, and for me, that really took until the late 90s, maybe even 2000 or so, before I thought, gosh, you know, we're not going to keep on losing people. We're not going to lose people in the sorts of numbers that we did in the past. So H- my experience of HIV, you know, is, is very different now uh, to, to what it was then. And today, for me, it's, it's more about the underlying principles that do take us back to the beginning, that... Uh, it's something that has been a part of my life. It's the part of the life of um, all of us uh, who are gay. Um, we can't avoid that. Um, and I want that experience to be the best possible experience. So, But I'm not sure that for all of us, particularly those of us who are really deeply immersed in the experience of HIV in the, in the 80s and the early 90s through to the mid-90s, I'm not sure we've fully come to terms with just how traumatic that experience was. And I know there are lots of people in the community who were deeply affected, lost uh, loved ones, uh, lost many of their friends, and not everyone has fully recovered from that. And I'm not sure even collectively we've come to grips with the awfulness uh, of the epidemic. Uh, and I think there's uh, sometimes it takes a long time for, uh, uh, for communities to even be able to acknowledge the horror of what they've been through, let alone come to terms with that. So I think there's some unfinished business for uh, for us as a community, but also for all of us individually. Uh, but for me, I just feel so incredibly um, optimistic about the possibilities from here. And as an advocate, you know, I feel as though, you know, I've got the best job uh, in the country. You know, this is the perfect job for me. I started as an activist and I feel as though the work I do day to day continues that work. And although the epidemic looks really different and although my, my engagement with it, my life, uh, looks very different now. The underlying philosophy that as uh, as gay men, as LGBTI and Q communities, as people who have sometimes got a really raw deal uh, in terms of our lives, we can actually create change. For me to be in a role where I get to do that every day is a you know, source of huge pride and, uh, and enjoyment. I'm very lucky to be able to do that. We're very lucky that you're able to do that too and incredibly, <laughs> incredibly grateful. Thanks, Josh. I think uh, the theme for this year's International Candlelight Memorial really sums up how you just, what you just shared about kind of reflecting on our past mm. and preparing for our future and um, the relationship between what has been incredibly traumatic mm. historically for our communities and was 
really quite grim mm. and reconciling that with the optimism mm. that we're able to enjoy and the energy that comes with that optimism. Yes. The future is incredibly bright and it is. we're incredibly grateful to you and the work of uh, FAO and the whole community in continuing to address issues of HIV and AIDS in the community. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for your time, Daryl. For more information, visit our website at aidsaction.org.au. Follow us on Facebook or become an AIDS Action Council member. You know you want to. LGBTIQ health, lifestyle and community news. Check it out. It's brought to you by the AIDS Action Council. From Canberra. For everyone.